but the most important thing and the best thing that we get to say here is grab your Bible. Um, if you don't have one or own one, there's one in the pew back in front of you. Crack it down the middle to the book of Psalms, Psalm 129, and give your attention to the reading of God's Word today. Psalm 129, be reading the whole psalm. When you're there, say, Jesus lifted high. All right. Psalm 129. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Yet they have not prevailed against me. The plowers plowed upon my back. They have made long their furrows. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turned backward. Let them be like the grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not fill his hand, nor the binder of the sheaves his arms. Nor do those who pass by say, the blessing of the Lord be upon you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. We're glad that you're here, and we're in the summer playlist as we walk through the Psalms of Ascent. And as summer comes to a close, we're sort of gearing and getting close to the end. And just a quick review, um, if you haven't been here, you can go to our website and sort of get the big context of everything. But in your Bible, in the book of Psalms, which was sort of like God's inspired hymn book for the people of Israel, they traveled three times a year to Jerusalem by God's command to celebrate and hold certain feasts to remember all that God had done. And on the way to Jerusalem, they sang the Psalms of Ascent as they literally by elevation rose, but also in their spiritual journey rose to meet with God. And we said that that is a lot like us in our walk with Jesus, that, that the physical journey of the Psalms of Ascent represent a picture of our spiritual journey with Christ. As the Apostle Paul says, that we answer the upward call of God through Christ Jesus. And we've learned that, that we are on a pilgrimage, if you will. That, that this world is not our home, that we are in it but not of it. And if you will, the Psalms of Ascent are sort of like our soundtrack, if you will, as we're going through it. And it represents a whole just array of emotions and as you heard read to you, Psalm 129 has, has a different tone to it um, as the other psalms. That it's a little bit serious. That now something has sort of shifted in this journey, if you will. And, and maybe this will be helpful. This is a picture of Harold Lincoln Gray. He was born in the late, late 1800s. And Harold is not a scholar, not a theologian. Um, Harold was a cartoonist. We all have our jobs, right? Right? And um, Harold was a very, very talented cartoonist. But as he was living in a very important time in American history, um, Harold was not a fan of his current, uh, current president, which was Franklin Roosevelt. And so during that time when everything was happening with world wars and everything, Harold did what a lot of artists do is, is they use their art to express their point of view on things. And so as Harold um, sort of set out to create a comic strip that would encapsulate his beliefs and set the tone of the United States, in 1924, in the New York Daily News, he released the very first comic strip about a poor little orphan named Annie. 
to which we get Little Orphan Annie. And so this comic strip just sort of blew up and was just, people resonated with it. And as it continued to be successful, it went on to be a Broadway play. And then, of course, the famous 1982 movie and the musical, Annie. But on Annie's soundtrack, there's really two famous songs. But the one that we would probably all know is... It's a hard knock life for us. As Annie sings, it's a hard knock life for us. Instead of getting treated, we get tricked. And instead of kisses, we get kicked. It's a hard knock life. See, I have the Jay-Z version in the back of my mind right now, but a lot of you don't know what that is, so please pray for me. Doesn't it feel like the wind is always howling? Doesn't it seem like there's never any light? Once a day, don't you want to throw the towel in? Because it's a lot easier than even putting up a fight. No one's there when your dreams at night get creepy. No one cares if you grow or if you shrink. Empty belly life, rotten smelly life. Full of sorrow life. No tomorrow life. Santa Claus we never see. Santa Claus, what's that? Who is he? No one cares for you a bit when you live in an orphanage. You see, it's a hard knock life. For us, Psalm 129 carries the tone of it's a hard knock life. As Israel sings about their journey, they talk about what it's been like to be this small little nation surrounding huge nations. As they've been looked down upon, as they've tried to follow the ways of God in a broken world. And Psalm 129 expresses the emotions of this is difficult. This is hard. We are mistreated. This is difficult for us. And, and what's interesting is we, we see this theme carried all through Scripture. There's, there's a lot of promises that God gives us in Scripture that are incredible. And, and ones that I never see on T-shirts or coffee mugs might be 2 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. right out there in the lobby today as you drink your coffee, right? Now, obviously, as we understood and look back through church history and even worldwide now with martyrdom and people dying for the name of Jesus Christ, I think for us here in the U.S. in 2019, it sort of looks a lot like a social persecution of you might lose a job, you might lose friends, you might lose family members as you follow Jesus because for us, it is a hard-knocked life. And Peter would even go on to say that if you're surprised by this, it's because of your lack of knowledge. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Peter says that that when something like this comes along and you encounter a hard knock life, don't don't be surprised that, that we should be prepared for this. And one of the things that Psalm 129 does for us is that it prepares us for this. And Psalm 129 is in a category of of theological understanding, and this is the phrase. Lament is what the psalm is. Many of you have maybe been in church and grown up in church, and you've never heard or understood what lament is. Um, It's a pretty big deal. We even have a book of the Bible named uh, Lamentations. Lament is, is a fundamental aspect of the Christian life and living a godly life and even through our worship. And 
Lament is, is a way in which God has given us to express, um, well, here's the definition. A lament is the church's corporate expression about the brutal realities of a broken world. That's a lament. Sometimes it involves sin, sometimes it doesn't. A lot of times in the Psalms, here's what's so great when we look at the Psalms and something that we've learned through the Psalms of Ascent is that God can handle your, tenter, your temper tantrum, okay? God can handle you throwing a fit like your small child, all right? We see all through the Psalms, sometimes the psalmist raising their fist and shaking at God going, how long is this stuff going to continue? And sometimes it's even just like, it never even really ends. It's just like this, just this flood of emotion of this is going on. God, are you ignoring us? God, do you see all the brokenness, this, that, and the other? And it's just a full range of emotions. And it's the church's corporate aspect. Every time that we see a lament in the scriptures, it's a corporate aspect of it. It's not just this isolated thing, but rather it's the whole entire unit, which is important for us to understand because we are a body. And if one member suffers, we all suffer. And just because they are either across the street or across, across the globe or have a different skin color than us, just because those separate, when somebody in the body of Christ hurts, the entire body hurts. And it's the corporate expression of that. And last night as I sat down and turned on the news, like many of you, I thought in God's sovereignty, he had Psalm 129 for us. As 20 people in El Paso, nine or ten, and Dayton. Listen, look up here. I could give a rip about your political argument or wherever else you want to go with that. Look at me. Thirty-plus people were hurtled into eternity. What do we do with that? Because, see, I believe that the church speaks to these issues. I believe that the Bible has categories for us to be able to deal with, with these emotions. And when we look at the broken, brutal realities of the world, what are we supposed to do with these emotions that we feel? God has given us these emotions that we created in the image and likeness of God. And the category for us today in Psalm 129 is to lament. And it's something that's difficult for us to understand in life of the church. I mean, when you turn on life radio, there's not just a bunch of top ten Christian songs that are lament. Right? Nobody's just downloading songs of lament constantly off iTunes because we, we're unsure about it. And so as, as one pastor, Charles Spurgeon, spoke to his church, he said these words, Psalms of lament are solemn words. You see, sometimes we have a more joyful theme than this. But I believe that spiritually as well as naturally, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. A meditation of a quiet kind on things not as they are in fiction, but as they prove to be in fact is always salutary. 
You see, there is a great mass of sorrow in the world, and all of us meet with, all of us need something every now and then to calm our spirits and to cool our blood. So this evening, Spurgeon spoke to his church, by the blessing of God's spirit, we may go away even more refreshed than if our hearts were made glad by a merry little tune. You see, I think that we need to move into these spaces because a lot of times we create sort of an Instagrammed world around us where, where we don't know how to move into the brokenness and, and into the sadness. And so we always try it. It's very positive. It's very, you know, always just these Christian cliches and this, that, and the other. But as Spurgeon says, what a lament does is, is it forces us to see reality just as it truly is is. And we resist that a lot of times. And so as we look at the church's corporate expression, we learn that, that God does not want us to suppress these emotions. So man, as, as, as being a pastor, and learn, I've been learning a lot about human emotions and sort of interaction and, and how human beings respond to things. And, and oftentimes, we as human beings can, can attend church all of our life. I mean, sat through a ton of sermons, read the Bible cover to cover. But when it comes to being emotionally mature, we are whining little babies. Because we don't know how to process our emotions. And, and listen, spiritual maturity and emotional maturity, they fly side by side. You are not someone who is spiritually mature and emotionally immature. It doesn't work that way. For the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Against such these there is no law. And so understanding that we, we're not to suppress this, but, but to express it, but to express it in such a way that God has defined. And so lament isn't just like sackcloth and ashes, Though it is that, because if we were, listen, if we were just left to that, that's what I call being Eeyore, right? If you've been at Westside in any period of time, you know, you know what I'm talking about. You know where I'm going with this right now, right? Some of you have no idea because you're Eeyore, okay? <laughs> right? How's it going? Well, okay, I guess. Yeah, how's the family? Well, it, you know, and it's just always raining on you all the time. And so when you hear this, you go, oh, lament. I'm really good at that, okay? No, 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 no. There's a way in which we express the brutal realities of a broken world. But we do it in such a way. Well, here's what the Apostle Paul told one church in 1 Thessalonians. Brothers and sisters... We do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death. This church wrote the Apostle Paul a letter and asked a question about those who died. They, they were mourning people who had died within their church. And the Apostle Paul says, those who sleep so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Do you know what the church in Thessalonica was doing? They were lamenting. They were expressing the broken realities of the brutal harshness of death in the world. And they were like, these people have died. What happens next after all of this? And the Apostle Paul says, you grieve 
The Apostle Paul didn't say, you suppress that, and then at church in Thessalonica, next Sunday when you're getting your coffee, and somebody says, how's it going? And you say, fine, everything's fine, right? No, 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 no. You grieve, but not like the world. Not like those without hope. Now, look at our text, Psalm 129. Look how it starts. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say, greatly have they afflicted me from my youth. The first two verses set the tone of the rest of the psalm. The word greatly could even be used. You might have a footnote in your Bible often. And so it's a corporate expression of Israel's pilgrimage and journey as the people of God. But also you better believe that there's personal aspects and tones to this. That some people are singing this who now don't have a relationship with their mother and father because they follow the ways of God. Or people are expressing this who have gone through physical sickness and this, that, and the other. But then, oh man, listen, I've been so excited about this. Look at the end of verse 2. Greatly have they afflicted me from my youth, yet. See, look, look, I need every word in the Bible. I need every word, man. I need the word yet. You know why? Because if there's no yet, then there's no shift. Because then all I'm doing is saying, greatly have they uh, uh, afflicted me, and, and I'm a victim. Verses 1 through 2, before I get to the end of verse 2, I am the victim of my entire life, of my upbringing, of the ways of God, of the brutality of the world. I am a victim. But then when I get the word yet, it shifts. Yet they have not prevailed against me. So now it's not the victim mindset, but rather through the goodness and kindness and mercies of God, we understand that the people of God are not victims, but rather victors because of Jesus Christ. And so listen, here's, here's the thesis today of Psalm 129. The only way that you can overcome the world's badness is to be overwhelmed by God's goodness. That's it. And listen, if you're not a believer in here and, and you're just sort of peeking over the fence or you're trying to figure all this stuff out, here's, here's where I would challenge you about why I believe that Christianity and the Bible presents sort of the, the best worldview, if you will. Because what else do you do with what's happened over the past 24 hours? What, what worldview do, do you lay over that grid? How in the world can we deal with life's badness apart from being overwhelmed by God's goodness? See, Psalm 129 speaks of how the people of God, because of the goodness of God, not because the people of God are awesome, not because the people of God didn't drink, cuss, or chew, or go with girls that do, or did any of this stuff, or didn't do this stuff, or voted this way, or didn't vote that way. But the people of God in Psalm 129 overcome because of the goodness of God. That is the thrust of it. And so today we look at how, how do we overcome we overcome by being overwhelmed by the goodness and kindness of God. But what does the goodness and kindness of God look like? Well, the first thing that we see is this, that the goodness of God is active. It's active. It's not just this 
ethereal concept. But look at verse 4. The Lord is righteous. I mean, look at verse 3. The plowers plowed upon my back. They made long their furrows. I mean, look at the emotions in this psalm. How, how God has inspired that, that this is how bad life is, that people are literally you, walking all over me. And then verse 4, the Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. There's a lot there in verse 4. The first thing is that you see how the word Lord is in all caps? The, the psalmist is, is invoking God's personal name. Only the name of God. Yehovah. It's the name that God gave Moses back in Exodus 3. Why, why is that important to understand? Because it's important to understand that anytime you go through trials or suffering or affliction, that God cares. That God is personal. Because listen to me, the greatest, the greatest lie that the enemy could ever just subtly lay before you is that God doesn't care. Nobody cares. Look at everything that you've gone through in your life. I mean, I can't believe what he did to you. If only everybody else in town knew who you, were, who you really are. And nobody ever really knows. And God doesn't even really care. And then all of a sudden, that sets off a chain reaction, and then we find ourselves isolated. And when we are, that's why the lament is a corporate expression. It's almost like you're dangling so close to the edge that your emotions are almost going to make you fall off the edge. But rather, you hear the people of God lamenting with you, and you realize, I'm not going to go over, but these people have me because God has us. Because God really does care. It's the personal name of God. But then look at this. He has cut the cords of the wicked. It's, not, it's, it's in the past tense. It's that God is not only going to do something, but God has done something. And what's so profound, listen, here's this sentence. There can be no power over you when you are under the power of God. You see, because you... In the language, the word cords means almost reins like a horse. And so it's interesting that, that the psalmist would say that wickedness has sort of like a rein and, and control, if you will. Temptation and bitterness and unforgiveness, they... They have a reign and, and a control. And, and they dictate every decision. When you wake up in the morning, you feel it physically on you about that conflict, about this, about that, and the other. And there's almost this type of, of power, literally. And what the psalmist says is, see, it's the irony. When you submit to the power of God, that is where true freedom and true power is actually found. It's not the common theme of submission is bad and submission equals badness because true freedom is found in a lack of restraint and everything else like this. But in reality, that true freedom is found in submission and in submission to a good master being God. So, so listen, this is a word for some of you today that God's goodness is active, that God's doing a thousand things in your life that you're unaware of and that you can't even see right now. But through the authority and through the exhortation of God's word, that his goodness is doing something in your life. 
that it's active, that it's not just a hang in there, brother, we're praying for you. It's not just a cheesy thing like that, but God is doing something in our lives because of his goodness. It's active. But then the second thing that we see is that God's goodness is expressed in prayer. Verse 5 shifts in the psalm. The very first word is may. May all who hate Zion be put to shame and turn backward. It's, it's interesting that in order, okay, just follow me here, all right? Because I have the spiritual gift of ADD or ADD, ADD, whatever that is, okay, right? So I'm, I really quickly might go squirrel or something like that, okay? That could happen. If lament is the church's corporate expression of our, emo, of our emotions of the broken realities of the brutalness of this world. Then the next step is, is that expression is found in prayer. And that tells me that prayer is the harness and guardrails for us to dispense our emotions. Not Facebook. You're laughing, but you do it, right? It's like this idea of if I can only get affirmation. Listen, man, you can get on the Internet and you can, you can have the craziest understanding and you can get on the Internet and find someone that will affirm your view very easily, okay? Right? There's even people out there who think cats are better than dogs. It's insane, okay? It's nuts. You can find anything on the Internet, all right? But rather, what we see that, that, that the funnel that God has given, that the place in order for this to happen is through prayer. Because listen, God can handle it. And what we're about to see, the three things that, that is prayed in prayer are pretty heavy. Like, like the first thing in a lament that we can pray for is to pray for justice. Because look at verse 5. May all who hate Zion, the holy city of God, be put to shame and turned backward. This is the word, um, an impeccatory psalm, right? At invoking God to do something. It's pretty strong emotions. But when we look out in the brokenness of the world and we see horrible, horrendous things of people shopping at Walmart... Bulletproof backpacks. We should be angry. It should invoke something in us. Listen, I'm not, the greatest threat to the church is not atheism outside the church, it's apathy within the church. Good Lord. Do you have emotions? Does it do anything to you that when you see this and you see the goodness of God and the way that it should be, but rather what the brokenness of sin and even my own sin has done to the world, that it invokes something and that something should be made right. But we pray, listen to me, that God would make it right. That God would make it right. And yes, he uses people. But listen, here's what the Apostle Paul tells the church in Romans. Beloved, this is Paul, not Jason, so don't get mad at me, okay? Beloved, never avenge yourselves. But leave it to the wrath 
of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, and I will repay. Do you know what the early church, when they were being slaughtered, that Roman history tells us that literally the streets and the gutters in Rome ran with the blood of the martyrs. Maranatha, Lord, come quickly and bring your justice. And many of us are trying to fill a job description that's God's. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. One translation says, leave room for the wrath of God. Some of us are crowding God out. And we actually think that it depends upon us. And it ne- I've just never seen it go well. I've just never seen it go well with picket signs or this, that, and the other. I've never seen the long-lasting effects of something like that. But when you show me church history and you show me the people of God who are constantly getting pushed out and getting marginalized, yet they are the ones who are taking the babies that are in the streets, yet they are the ones who are setting up the hospitals. I've yet to this day to walk into a hospital that's named after Charles Darwin. Darwin Hospital, never been in it yet. But it's always when you trace back and you see how people cared for people, even though when they were getting pushed out, justice came through the people of God, begging God to make it right. Listen to me. It is okay for you to pray through prayer for God to make the wrongs right in his way, not our own, not our own. We pray for justice. And then the second thing is this. We pray for victory. We pray for victory. Look at what it says in verse 6. Let them be like the grass on the housetops, which withers before it grows up, with which the reaper does not even fill in hand, nor the binder of sheaves his arms. It's crazy. when Listen, we say we're Bible people. Southeast Missouri, I love the Bible, right? Yet we are so biblically illiterate of of these areas, and it's almost strange for us to want to pray these things as we see guardrailed by God's word. But when it comes to this understanding, the people of Israel were saying that when God's justice comes, that when God's justice comes, we benefit. We benefit from the victory that God has won. Now let's draw the line from that even all the way to your salvation. For we understood that justice happened at Calvary. That if, we, if, that if we want to understand how God really feels, as John Stott says, how does God really feel about sin, then look to the brutality of the cross. It is not a fickle thing. It is not a small thing. But then at the same time, how much does God love His people? We look to the same cross and Jesus because of his life death and resurrection has brought victory over sin death and hell and has freed us from that and so now we get literally the spoils of everything that Jesus has done but even in life as we're going through this and the people of God and listen I'm speaking there's going to be over the next multiple years I'm not trying to get all crazy and all this type of stuff but listen the worse that it gets the best you will see the people of God rise up the darker that it gets I believe the brighter the church shines I mean, it's like we're not in a room locked away so afraid as to everything that's happening. But rather, we're actively doing this and we're lamenting at the same time. 
And the Apostle Paul even prayed something that was like unbelievable in 2 Timothy when he talks about the end of his life. He's moments away from dying. And the Apostle Paul writes this to Timothy. Alexander, the metal worker, he did me great harm. And the Lord will repay him for what he has done. Some of you are like, that's my new life verse. <laughs> I, have, I just found a new life verse, 2 Timothy 4. This is great, right? But look at what Paul says. The Lord will repay him for what he has done. You too should be on guard against him because he strongly opposed our message. Who, who's going to handle it, Paul? Are you going to? Oh, what Paul's going to do is he's going to go to the coppersmith's co-workers and he's going to say, can you, but this is what your boss did to me and I'm, I don't know if you know this or not, but you should probably do this and then we should do this and then you should have a conversation with this person and I cannot believe that she, is that the Lord, that God in his goodness and in his kindness is going to be doing something. We are praying for justice and listen, we are praying for victory. We are praying, we are praying from the goodness and kindness of God that we know that this is all going to be made right someday. And some of you have gone through some of the most horrendous things in your life. And listen, I've, I've got to tell you, I've got to tell you that it's not wasted, that it is not wasted in your life, but God is going to use that bad thing for good. And in the end, in the end, God will make all wrongs right he will, and through prayer, we beseech him for that. We pray for justice. We pray for victory. And then the last thing is this. We pray for blessing. Verse 8. Nor do those who pass by say, the blessing on the Lord be upon you. Do you know what the psalmist is saying? It's almost a sarcastic tone. That the people that are inflicting these things on, on our life are not walking by saying, the blessing of the Lord be upon you, which was a calmest Jewish greeting. The blessing of the Lord be upon you. But what the psalmist is saying is that blessing does not reside with them. That blessing does not reside with them. But rather, we are asking for the blessing of the Lord to be upon you, and we bless you in the name of the Lord. And then Jesus comes along and has the audacity to say that those who hate you, you pray for them. And those who persecute you, you stand upon your amendment rights. I'm just saying you give them a cup of cool water and you feed them and you pray for them. And in the end, goodness, the goodness and kindness of God always wins. It always wins. And God, in his profound mystery, has chosen us to be the vessels. May the Lord be with us, right? But the only way that we can overcome life's badness is to be overwhelmed by God's goodness. I want to close in a particular way today, and I want to make this very applicable as our worship team comes. What does this look like in our life when it comes to lament and a corporate expression? And we grieve, but as those not without hope. This is a picture of a gentleman by the name of Charles Albert Tinley. Charles was an American Methodist pastor he was a profound preacher of his time, and he lived in the early 1900s. He was also 
a scholar and a poet, and he wrote many, many hymns. When he looked out in the world and saw the devastation of racism and everything that was happening during his day, many days he would wake up in such a deep depression that he thought, why am I even doing what I'm doing? Why is the church even doing what we are doing? But as he would mosey his way to his Bible and spend time with God's Word and with God in prayer, he said that he would always walk away with a different view. And one day when he woke up in a deep depression, he wrote these words. It is the title of a hymn called, I'll Overcome Someday. This world is one great battlefield with forces all arrayed. If in my heart I do not yield, I will overcome someday. Though many a time no signs appear or answer when I pray, my Jesus says I need not fear. He will make it plain someday. You see, the hymn, I'll Overcome Someday, actually became very popular. You know it. Lyndon Johnson said it over the radio to the entire United States. And on March of 1963, Dr. Martin Luther King thundered the words from the Washington Monument. Now, there's a little song that we sing in our movement down in the South, and I don't know if you've heard it. It became the theme song to this movement. We shall overcome. You see, we shall overcome, and deep in my heart, I do believe that we shall overcome. Now I join hands often with students and brothers and sisters behind jail bars singing, we shall overcome. Sometimes we've had tears in our eyes when we join together to sing, but we still decided to sing it. And we shall overcome. Lord, before this victory is won, some of us will have to get thrown in jail and some of us will be beaten, but we shall overcome. You see, don't worry about us because before the victory is won, some of us will lose our jobs, but we shall overcome. Before the victory is won, even some of us will face physical death. But if the physical death is the price that we must pay to free our children from the permanent psychological death, then nothing shall be more redemptive because we shall overcome. Westside, listen to me today. What we say to cancer today is we shall overcome. Come. What we say to sin and temptation is we shall overcome. And when we stand over the grave of our loved ones, we grieve, but not as those without hope, but we grieve and we sing together, we shall overcome. What we sing as the people of God is we will overcome the world's badness because we will declare and herald God's goodness. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to stand right where you're at and as the people of God singing with many trials and temptations staring at us in the face, we sing as God's people today, we shall overcome.
dragon Satan has been accusing the brethren and kicking them around and in verse 11 it says and they overcame them by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony we shall overcome Heavenly Father we come before you today grateful of the victory won through Christ not anything that we have done and God I pray that we are true in our emotions and expression that this is bad this is reality but we grieve not as those without hope as we come to the table and we see that the victory has been won through Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, have your way with us. We pray this all in the holy and the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Would you come forward and partake in the elements at the table today as you feel led?